So let's go through Galatians 5, though. As I say, that's going to frame this whole section. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. He's saying that if you're going to, he's using circumcision here to to, to sum up the whole of the law. He's saying if you're going to put your trust in the law, and so that's Moses' law, yeah, we're talking about the Ten Commandments and all of the rituals and things that came with that. If you're going to put your trust for your salvation in those things, you'd better follow it to the letter. More than that, you'd better have followed it to the letter. You'd better not have put one step out of place, right? You're not trusting in Christ. You're trusting in your own work, your own good deeds. I'm going to whistle through this. I'm not going to linger too long on these bits. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Now, we kind of go through two different bits there, don't we? But the He's saying, we trust in Jesus. If you trust in Jesus, then you have a hope. A real hope of righteousness. And then he's talking about how the the Galatian church has been fed this lie that they need to be circumcised, they need to turn back to elements of the law. He says, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view and the one who is troubling you, the, the one who's sharing this, these lies, will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach, preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. You know, let's go the whole hog, let's not just circumcise, let's get rid of the lot. <laughs> it's... it's For you were called to freedom, brothers. And he did not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. To summarize that whole section, he's saying you can either live under the law or you can live under trusting in, the, in Christ. Okay? So we've got that concept, that, that two option thing there. One under the law, under this yoke of slavery, this, this set of rules that you have to follow and you have to follow them exactly. Or, 
you can trust in Christ. What did he say? He said, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. It doesn't actually matter at that point whether you've managed to follow the rules or not, whether you're doing things or not. You are putting your trust in salvation in Jesus Christ alone. But he goes on. He says, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires... Sorry, lost my place. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other. To keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the spirit, you're not under the law. So he's carrying this kind of two two opposing uh, themes uh, into this passage. This concept of following the flesh or following the spirit. And he's saying these two things are opposed. They don't work together. And in fact, they both try to get you to stop following the other. They're opposed to one another. It's a concept that that Paul uses elsewhere. He talks about it in Romans as well. This this following the the flesh or following the spirit. He goes on to list what some of the works of the flesh are. He says the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Stuff you wouldn't see in Wokingham, right? Probably Bracknell, not in Wokingham. (laughs) Things like these, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So that's one side of this these two opposing desires. The other side, the fruit of the Spirit, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So this this fruit of the Spirit, this is a sign that you are walking in step with the Spirit. Okay, This this isn't the way that you walk in step with the Spirit. Do you see, there's a difference there. One is something you feel like you have to do in order to to keep up some kind of uh, level of success. And another is a sign that you already have that success. Now, this is going to please probably just Paul, but some of you as well. <laughs> but th- this, 
this illustration that I'm going to bring hopefully helps to highlight that. Take, I feel like this illustration was given to me by God, and in his wisdom, he chose to give me an illustration of, of a sport I know next to nothing about. So it will hopefully not humiliate me too much. Uh, but take Formula One, F1, F1, I think that's what you call it, isn't it? F1. Um, take F1. This, the sign that they have won the race is when they get on the podium. I've got a picture. They, they've got the hat with the wreath on it because they're not allowed to have the wreath anymore. Um, that's right, isn't it? Because the sponsors don't like the wreath covering up their names and stuff. So now they've got a hat, but that hat has some little wreaths on the front, you can see. They're on the podium, they've got the champagne, and they're going. Those things show that they won the race. Right? I think I'm right. Yeah, good. Paul's nodding. They show that, that those one drivers <laughs> were the best that day. Yeah? I knew I'd get some comments. Um, <laughs> they've won that day. Those things, the, the hat with the wreath, the champagne, the podium, those aren't what made them winners, right? Those are a sign that they have won. And so this fruit, these characteristics that, that the fruit of the Spirit brings are not, a, are not a, a way that you follow the Spirit. They are a sign that you are walking with the Spirit. Does that make sense? Is that helpful? Actually, if you think about it, they're pretty similar to circumcision. The thing he was just talking about. <laughs> the illustration of circumcision, just to be clear. What it meant and what it means. I've lost some people already now. <laughs> um, circumcision wasn't what made people God's people. It was supposed to be a sign that they were God's people. See the difference? And yet they put so much stock in that little bit of skin, didn't they? It meant so much more to them than, than it needed to. So let's bring this into to self-control, because that's the thing I'm supposed to be talking about. <laughs> we'll come back to one later, don't we? Now, self-control. What is Paul talking about in this context? Because he talks about self-control elsewhere, but I just want to highlight that it is, it is different. Here, he talks about self-control, and he uses a different word to elsewhere. So in Titus 2, that passage where he talks about what older women should be like and younger women should be like and older men and younger men, he, he uses self-control against all of them. But in that one, he uses the word sophrone, the Greek word sophrone, to mean self-control. Now, that has a context of, of your behavior, that is, you're, you're kind of temperate. You, you, you're not going up and down lots. You're not kind of getting angry at things or, or losing control in that sense. Whereas here, he uses the word enkratia. Now, that word means self-mastery. So this, is, this has got a different context. This is, this is being in control of what you do and, and not, not how you react but of, of how you spend your time, for instance. This, this is more of a, a reasoned 
this is how I'm going to take my next step type of, uh, of meaning. Now, that's interesting because he starts off Galatians 5 talking about us not being slaves anymore. And then towards the end, he starts talking about this self-control, this self-mastery. So there's a link, right? There's a link between these things. A slave to the law or a master of yourself. But like I said at the beginning, that, that, isn't that what led to sin in the first place? Being masters of our own desires and, and being able to walk however we decide to walk? Isn't that, isn't that dangerous? <laughs> but Paul's saying here, no, it's a, it's, it's a characteristic of somebody that walks with the Spirit. Tim Keller uh, says this, and uh, Owen actually, I, th I think, read the whole thing out in the first talk, so you might have heard this already. But Enkratia is self-control, the ability to pursue the important over the urgent, rather than to be always impulsive or uncontrolled. The slightly surprising counterfeit is a willpower which is based on pride, the need to feel in control. So there's this concept of, of not pursuing the thing that seems most urgent, but pursuing what you think is most important. Uh, a, a friend, Simon Redmill, who used to lead the church in Salisbury, uh, shared this with, with a group of us. Um, he, he said someone else had said it. He didn't say who. I don't know who, so I've credited it to him. Uh, Self-control is doing what you want most, not what you want now. I think that is a really helpful way of looking at it. That sense of what I want most... For me, anyway, what I want most is to see God's plan outworked in my life. That's what I want most. It isn't always what I want at that point. Generally, I don't know about you, but generally, the things I want in the immediate, when I know they're not the right thing, reflect that first list, the list that is the way of the flesh rather than the way of the Spirit. They're much more aligned to that. I don't do all of it. But do, do you know what I mean? Like, like, like I'm sure I'm not alone in, in being like that. I know that I have an internal battle at times going, go on, do that. Look at that. Oh, go on, have a laugh about that. Go on, talk about this. Go on, go on. And, and I know those things aren't right. And I have a choice at that point, right? I can either go with the thing that I want to do most or the thing that I want to do at that point. That's what the, the, um, the, the extract that Owen read out from George Muller was getting at. That's how he, every day, he knows he has to remind himself of who he is. He has to bring himself back to joy in the Father. That's how he reminds himself what he wants most. 
not to get caught up in the things of that day, but to get caught up in the greater plan for his life. That's what Madeline, when she's talking about her, uh, her summer and, and her identity, all of this is about reminding yourself of the big picture, the things that we want most, not what we want now, right? I think it would be helpful to um, have a look at some, uh, some parts of David's life. This is King David. Because I think we can see some self-control happening in three, uh, three moments in his life. Two of them are success stories, and one of them the failure story. Okay, But let's see how it outworks itself. So... It will come up on the screen. We're not going to spend too long in them. Feel free to turn if you want to 1 Samuel 24 to start with. So this is a point where Saul is still king. He is, uh, he's been sent an evil, uh, an evil, an uh, 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 ad spirit from the Lord that makes him want to kill David. And in fact, he's chasing after David at this point, trying to kill David. Um, David, however, has already been told by Samuel that God has anointed him to be king over Israel one day. Saul currently is king. David is uh, running away from Saul because Saul wants to kill him. And yet David knows that one day he is going to be king. It says, when Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way, where there was a cave. And Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Now this is a moment, isn't it, where actually David is in control. He, he's been given permission. He can do whatever he wants. He could kill Saul if he wanted to. That would, firstly, make the 3,000 men army outside the cave leave him alone. I don't know about you, that's quite high up. That would be high up my list of, of things to achieve that day. Do you mean, like, escape 3,000 men trying to kill me? He could come to the point where he is a king of Israel the very thing that God has said he will become. Like, this is good, right? This is, this is the moment, surely. But this is what David did. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. So in that moment where he was in complete control... He didn't kill the man, he just cut off a bit of his robe. Now, we're not going to read much more on this, because the next, uh, 
the next illustration from his life is very similar. And in that one, he goes on a bit further to explain his reasoning. And so we're going to look at that one. So this time, David and his men are hiding away. Saul has come out again to chase David. And there's a whole army, there's a camp uh, down from where David is hiding. And David, a little bit cocky here, is like, should we go down? Should we go and uh, have a little look in the camp and see what's going on in Saul's camp, see if we can find them? And so one of David's uh, mighty men, Abishai, says, yeah, I'll go with you. Let's do it. And so they sneak down. It says, so David and Abishai went to the army by night, and there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment, with his spear stuck in the ground at his head. And Abner and the army lay around him, so they're all fast asleep. Saul's spear is right by him, and David is there with his friend Abishai. Then Abishai said to David, God has given, I should probably whisper, shouldn't I? They're, they're all asleep, he's scared. God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the ground. With one stroke of his spear, I won't strike twice. But David said to Abishai, do not destroy him. For who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him. Or his day will come to die. Or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water and let us go. So again, instead of taking control and using that control to make himself king, to stop him being pursued, he decides to step back and to let Saul live. But he gives reasons this time. His trust is not that he will become king and that's going to be right. His trust is that God will make him king in some way. His trust is that God will fulfill the promises that God has given him rather than he has to fulfill them for himself. Now, he could take control and he could make that happen in either of those two moments. But instead, he pauses and he says, God, I trust you. You will take this man down one day. You will either send, uh, he doesn't even know how. He's like, you, you, God will uh, either kill him or he'll just grow old and die. Or he'll go into battle and die in that way. But somehow, God, you're going to kill this man. I'm leaving it to you. I don't want you to hear what I'm not saying here. I'm not saying don't take action ever. Just be like, God, you, do you know, you've called me to this life. Just would you, you know, I, I want to see my friends saved. Yeah, make that happen. I'm, I'm just going to trust you with it. I won't worry about any of that. You know, I, That's not what David's doing here. David is actively saying, I trust you, God, and I'm going to walk the path that you have laid out for me. I'm not going to make my own path here. Okay? There's a very big difference. But this David, <laughs> this great hero who has done so well in those two times, has taken that moment where he is in complete control and has decided to do God's path rather than his path 
doesn't always live that way. Right? If we move forward to 2 Samuel 11, we see another moment. This time, David is king. Saul has been killed, not by David's hand. Saul did die. David has become king. He's ruler over everything. Surely he can do anything he wants. And then this happens. It happened late one afternoon. When David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers, messengers and took her. And she came to him and he lay with her. Now, I'm going to stop there. Clearly, again, he's in control. He's king. He can do whatever he wants. This time, though, he chooses not what he wants most. What he wants most is to, to see God glorified. The rest of his life shows that, right? What he wants most is to see God reigning above him in all of Israel, right? He wants to see God put in his right place, worshipped and adored. But what he wants right that moment is that woman. So he practices in the first two instances self-control by walking the right way. And then in this one, he walks the wrong way. The first two, he's got the big picture in sight. What he wants most. The third one, what he wants now. Okay? Now, I chose these quite consciously. Because these help to show that these, this way of living isn't a set of rules that you have to follow. Okay? This man, David, carried on. Now, he did receive punishment. Uh, those of you that know the, your Bibles well know what happens after this. There was punishment that happened. But he was still called a man after God's own heart. Even after that, he still saw God's, uh, God in, in charge of Israel. He still handed the throne over to his son. He still followed God, even after messing up. And I want to just bring us into that, because what I don't want you to hear, and I think what Paul is saying through that first part of Galatians, is that this isn't about following rules and regulations, going, I've been kind today, tick. I've been good today, tick. I've been self-controlled today, tick. It's not about that. It is about walking with the big picture in mind and going, God, I want to walk with you, and I want to go the way that you call me to go. You might and you will stumble. There will be moments where just as David looked and saw something that he wanted in that moment, and he took it, there will be moments where you do the same, where I do the same. But that doesn't mean that you don't have these characteristics, and that doesn't mean that you can't come straight back and go, God, I want to keep walking with you. Let's go back to our Formula One driver for a moment. He has a choice, right? As he's driving around the track, he can choose to listen to the people in his ear who are telling him, 
I think, overtake now. Don't overtake now. Come into the pit stop. You need new tires. Go for it. Go for it. You've won. Whatever they're saying. Or he can go, I've got this. I can do it. He could even take the earpiece out, right, and just go, I'm going to go for it. And I'm pretty sure if he does, he's not going to win, right? That's, that's the reality. He can either listen or not. And that's where we're at, right? We've got the ability to listen to God. Now, that might come in various forms for you. The first and most important is through your word, right? Yeah? We, we can hear God's word, his actual word to us in here. And we can follow it. We can choose to believe it. We can choose, like George Muller, to, to say, I'm going to come before you each morning. Like I say, you might not make it. You might not manage it every morning. But is that your heart? Is that what you want most? Because I tell you, if it's what you want most, then yes, sometimes, some days, some seasons, you're going to have time where you don't do that. I know that's true for me. I know I've just been away on holiday and I, I loved, I got a morning with God just on my own. I just went out for a ride and a walk and a climb and it was just so refreshing. But I know the lead up to that holiday, I had so much work on. I know that the thing that dropped was my time with God to make time for work. Oh, by the end of that, did I look kind and gracious and good? Was I full of joy and peace? No, I was stressed. I was angry. I would snap at the kids. I would, I would go off the handle because I'd let my, my eyes go off of the big picture. What do I want most to what do I need to do right now? Right now I need to get this report done. I've got to get it done. I've got a holiday. I've got to be ready for holiday. That's what consumed my mind and my thoughts. And it's great. I did need to get done. It wasn't a bad thing. But I let it take up more space and time than it should have done, right? I let it become my priority over spending time with God. Just like David with Bathsheba, I saw what I wanted there and then. I wanted to finish that report. And I did that. Rather than going, God, I'm trusting you that spending time with you is my greatest priority and my greatest need. So we have this life by the Spirit or life by the flesh. This, I can drive around the track on my own, doing it my own way, overtaking whenever I want, pit stopping whenever I want, or listening, following the, the word in my ear of God and winning. Now, like I say, we're going to fail at times. But this is, this is my last one illustration, right? So, and I want to end here. There are moments in Formula One where a driver wins before the end of the season, right? 
they get up and they get this champagne and they're spraying and they've got the wreaths on their hats and you know there's sponsorships written all over them and they're all excited and, and they're on the podium and there's big celebrations, right? There's moments where that happens early in the season, yeah? Earliest? Doesn't know. Michael Schumacher, 2002, I did my research. Now, <laughs> uh, at that point, he was six races from the end of the season. He could perform awfully in all six races and still receive the prize of being the winner at the end of that season. Yeah? That is so similar. That is such a good illustration, I think, of us and what Christ has done in us. Christ has won with races left in the season. Okay? He was so good, he'd never messed up once, that he actually finished the season as early as possible as the winner. And at that point, he's not accredited that winning season just to himself. He's accredited it to those that trust him. And so now, we can race however we want. We could choose to race really badly. We could choose to not even turn up, actually. But at the end of that season, yeah, we'll still have won. But we won't have reflected the winner that Christ has made us, right? So we can go out there and we can get in those cars and we can do our best, even if our best is that we can't even start the flipping thing, right? Even if our best is that we drive straight into a corner, we are accredited with Christ's righteousness. So yeah, we're going to get up. We're going to use our self-control to, to, to try our best. We're going to listen to the Spirit. We're going to try and walk in line with the Spirit. But where we end, no matter how we, how we perform up to there, where we end is accredited with Christ's win. <laughs> Whatever we do now, if we have our trust in him and his performance, the number of points he scored on that board, there's enough points on there to mean you are going to come first. You are going to attain the prize that he has set aside for you. That is our reality, right? That is the truth of who we are. And that is why we want to say, God, Thank you so much. I want to walk with you every day of my life. Thank you that when I fail, you pick me up. Thank you that when I fail, my identity is still as that child of yours, that one who is going to attain the prize that you have won on my behalf. That's why we want to walk in, life, in step with the Spirit. That's why we want to perform for him to our best. Not to achieve something, but to reflect what he has already achieved for us. 
I want to stop there. I want us to take communion as a sign of our, of our um, response to this. To say, God, I thank you for what you have done in my life. I thank you for what you have achieved for me. I thank you that on that cross you took every one of my failures into your perfect body. And you paid the price for every one of them. And I want to thank you that now, by your spirit, I can walk with you every day of my life. Now, for some of us, we might want to just take a moment as we do that to repent, to say, God, I know I haven't been living in line with